Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hey, you okay, Con? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, just polling. Uh, and yeah, 10 days out. And Nice. What, what are you out now? Solid. Still holding. Yeah, 1%. That's a scene from the season four premiere of HBO's Succession, in which Connor Roy discusses his long shot presidential campaign. Well, today, we're going to talk to a real-life version of Khan, the 37-year-old running for president and polling at 1%. You know, I was an outsider growing up in many ways, but everyone's an outsider in some way or other. Kidding aside, Vivek Ramaswamy is actually no Connor Roy, and we're going to find out why you just might want to take him seriously. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. The 2024 Republican presidential primary is off to a bit of a slow start. Donald Trump and former governors Nikki Haley and Asa Hutchinson have entered the race, but other likely candidates such as Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence are still sitting on the sidelines. Almost every Republican senator who flirted with the idea seems likely to pass, with the notable exception of Tim Scott, who's been making stops in Iowa and New Hampshire. Into this vacuum has come Vivek Ramaswamy. You probably don't know much about him. He's a young entrepreneur from Ohio who's never run for anything. But there are a few reasons to keep an eye on Vivek, as everyone calls him. One, he says he's willing to spend millions of dollars of an estimated half a billion dollar fortune on the race. He is a regular presence on the Fox News Channel, which is the top information source for Republican primary voters. And he seems to be putting together a serious campaign made up of political pros. Vivek jumped into the race in February with one goal in mind. In an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal announcing his candidacy, he declared that he was running to forge what he called, here let me read it, an inspiring national identity that dilutes the woke agenda to irrelevance. He was in town the other day for a series of meetings and TV hits, and we met up for lunch on Capitol Hill. Vivek has an impressive resume. He went to Harvard as an undergrad and Yale for law school. He made most of his money as a pharmaceutical executive, but after seven years as CEO of the company that he founded, he quit to focus on his new passion, political activism. He became a face of the self-described anti-woke right and a regular on Tucker Carlson. You can get a sense of his politics from the titles of his last two books, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, and Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. His third book, Capitalist Punishment, How Wall Street is Using Your Money to Create a Country You Didn't Vote For, will be released this month. And yes, like Connor Roy, Vivek is polling at 1%. That is, when polls even bother to include him among the candidates tested. But he swears he has a plan to break out of the single digits and take down Donald Trump. 
I joined Vivek at the restaurant Art and Soul to learn whether he was completely delusional or whether he just might be onto something. I think the danger with DeSantis is he thinks he's doing the thing that I'm talking about, yeah. but by accident ends up not doing enough of the right thing and too much of the wrong thing. All right, unpack that a little bit. I mean, I could go on about this, Because he's right? the one person that is in government that takes a lot of what you're saying seriously and is trying well, he takes to, it very to purge the books I've written very closely and, and emulates them. And I respect that. I'm, I'm actually grateful for it. And but if we had to thing. point to one elected official who's trying to do a version of what you're doing right now, I would probably be him. Maybe there are other governors I, out there that are I, I think I think most people would say that. Okay. <clears throat> and so I think how, that he's trying to do that. How would you assess his uh, records on that? Not as good as you would hope for somebody who was trying to implement these ideas. Because I think that I'll just give you two examples yeah. off the bat. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was actually talking about this last night. Let's take Disney. So, yeah. so, so the way this works, I think, is there's a everyone gets what they need out of the gravy train game going on. Career politicians going after a woke corporation. What do you want? You want a news cycle. You want popularity with your base. You want a trend cycle on Twitter. Get some media hits out of it. Yeah. Well, after that, that's what happened with Disney. What happens when he appointed those new board members to the governing someone from Moms for Liberty and some, you know, some other conservative activist to the oversight board governing the special district for right, Disney. Right. What it is Disney quietly do is they implement restrictive covenants that basically say that board has absolutely no authority for 30 years before yeah. they were able to actually carry out what they were previously going to carry out. Yeah. But that doesn't generate headlines. And so the company knows that, hey, this guy's in it for the objective of generating his headline, weather the storm and get there. I see. And right. so in a certain sense, you, like... You think there's no follow, uh, there's not a follow-through you know, on, the, on this? Disney wins. DeSantis wins. Left-wing politicians who like to critique DeSantis win. But unfortunately, people on the right are duped into thinking something actually happened. People on the left are duped into thinking that this guy is actually, you know, the right's actually evil. When in fact, the whole the charade at the heart of it is nothing actually happened. Now, that's just, is that a one-off? No, it's not. I'll give you one with respect to BlackRock. I mean, same thing, yeah. you know, and, you know, BlackRock, right, is, is, is a popular target yeah. to go after for many Republican politicians and for good reason. Right? You know, I think a lot of what BlackRock does is downright wrong. What does, you know, Ron DeSantis do? They pull $700 million ceremoniously after several other states have done it, but then say, OK, we want our amount to be the biggest. It's like price is right in reverse. So we'll get $700 million <laughs> out of BlackRock. It's like but government cash. pensions and that yeah, kind of thing. Well, yeah, well, actually, it's from their treasury, but yeah. that's cash and short-term securities. But actually, the real problem is, is the voting behaviors in corporate America. So then you go into detail, look at Florida's own voting record. Yeah. It's actually not that much better than BlackRock's on ESG metrics over the course of the last few years. Racial equity audits, civil rights representatives in the boards of Facebook. And that was under Ron DeSantis's watch. So I think that part of what's going on here is everybody gets what they need out of the trade. And then even the targets kind of know that all they need to do is weather the storm. And, and I think that that leaves everybody else inadvertently holding the bag, whether you're on the left or on the right, but, you know, on the right in particular, on the base, believing something important happened, when in fact, in substance, nothing changed, even though the party who's actually taking the action got what he needed to out of it. So he cares about the headlines and the media publicity and the follow through is lacking when you look at the details. Exactly. When you look at the details. And I think that's why you need, I think you need a candidate who first personally has a deep understanding of these issues, but who also comes in as an outsider in a way that isn't captive to, I think, a lot of the pressures and constraints that come with a professional career politician. If you're on a debate stage with him, you'll point all this out? I mean, and, I mean, just the beginning. <laughs> this, just, <laughs> this just scratches the surface. Just because, not because I have anything against Ron DeSantis. I think it's just a, a symptom of 
the track of a career politician, right? He's a skilled one, but a career politician who makes for a good governor, by the way, in many respects. I mean, Florida has prospered in a lot of ways under his watch. And, you know, I respect his, you know, COVID response, all things considered, was, was pretty good. But I think that when we're in the middle of this national identity crisis, for the person who leads from the White House, we can't afford to have a follower. We need someone who's actually a leader. And whether it's refusal to talk to NBC News or whether it's, you know, waving in whatever direction the flag blows on a given day, pro-Ukraine, and you know, anti-supporting Ukraine to then walk it back based on, again, what the media reactions are on a given day to somebody who, you know, I think is beholden to donors to have to fund a campaign, to run a shadow campaign, to, you know, without actually having the fortitude to state one's intentions, to say whether you got the second shot. I mean, just say it, right? I mean, I don't know. It's, 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 if you're asking, it's a big thing to ask the country to vest you with the authority to sit across the table from Xi Jinping on the global stage. If you're not willing to talk to NBC News or tell people whether you got the second shot or actually see something through with Disney or BlackRock while taking credit for it, I'm just giving yeah. you examples. And, and it's nothing is to say. It's about, it's about this, is the, this is the problem of a career politician. There's two non-career politicians in this race, Donald Trump and myself. I think pretty soon, before long, I think this is going to be a two-person race. Between myself and Donald Trump. Two questions here. Are there any presidential campaigns that you've studied, outsider campaigns that started with, you know, 1% name recognition that that took off um, that you've looked at um, and you think are a good model? And two, what's the most important thing to help you along with that process? Is Is it getting into the debates? Yeah, I mean, we're going to get into debates. You think uh, so? Oh, you don't think the RNC is going to, like, make it impossible? I mean, I, th- I, think, I think we're going to make it impossible for them to make it impossible. <laughs> right. We blew through 10,000 donors and, like, yeah. 30% are first-time donors to the party, and we're just But they may have a polling requirement. And then we're going to be fine on the polling requirement, too. Yeah. I mean, even if I started at literally zero <laughs> uh, when we started the race. Yeah. And, you know, most recent Quinnipiac went amongst Republicans. I'm 2%. I'm, I was, we're not even spending money yet. And, and we're going to spend real money. So I think we're going to be making squarely into into prominence on the debate stage. You can cite me on this. Yeah. Anything before the debates is literally irrelevant in this right. race. No. It is irrelevant noise. Look at how the history of predicted last race. I absolutely agree. The debates can be game let's, changers. Let's, let's have those she, debates. You know that. You know the debate is everything for you. Oh, that's a powder keg about to explode, that yeah. debate. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, it's everything for the country to actually know what they're actually getting. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you this, the other candidates, they're not going to relish having me on the debate stage and, and I'm coming. So that's that's the answer. All right, you've laid out a very concise uh, case against uh, DeSantis. Yep, I can see how 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 that would uh, how you would prosecute that case on the campaign trail if if your campaign takes off. Um, what's your similar case uh, uh, against Trump? So, I think that Trump didn't go far enough with the America First agenda. Now, I give him credit for laying it out and spotting problems with the federal bureaucracy and with our policy with respect to China, for example, that no one else had pointed out. Yeah. But I I think I can build on that foundation and go further than he even would in a second term. I think he went about as far as he was going to go. Maybe he'd go a little further. But I think that here's what I believe. I believe I can take the America First agenda to the next level without apology and even do it in a way that unifies the country if we do it with moral authority. And I think that that's what Ronald Reagan did. With moral authority. Yeah. How, what, what do you mean by that? I, well, what I mean, I think that I think we can be conservatives who opine about family values, opine about reviving faith in America. And you know what? I think, I think Ronald Reagan is a president I'll say this about. 
do you want to, as a parent, you're talking about family values and cultivating that through leadership in the White House. I'd say that I have two sons. I would be a happy dad if my sons grew up to be like Ronald Reagan. Whether or not they become president, that's a man that they can be like, and I would be proud as a dad. Yeah. I think we want to put people in this country in a position to say that about who actually sits in the White House. We can talk about fatherlessness in the country all we want and the loss and erosion of family values and the need to revive the family and the two-parent household. I talk a lot about it because it's important. But we got to walk the walk a little bit with respect to setting a national example that then gives us the moral authority to say that I'm not just using the military to take out fentanyl in Mexico because I'm here to shake up the system. I'm doing it because it is the just thing to do. It is the principled thing to do. It is what it means to actually embody the American values that set this nation into motion in 1776 and to do it with credibility on principled, morally solid foundation with moral authority. And I think that will allow me to go further for Trump's base than Trump went. But some of this is also just time, right? He, he had one term to do it. That's fine. But the question is now, who's going to take that further for the country and do it in a way that doesn't lead us to a national divorce, but leads us to a national revival? And I'm running to be the candidate who is best positioned in either party to unify this country and to deliver a national revival, not by compromise, but actually by being uncompromising on principle. Are you saying that you couldn't point to Donald Trump as an exemplar to your kids the way that you could point to Ronald Reagan and say, I want you to grow up to be just like him? Are you dad? Yeah, same thing, two boys. How old are they? 14 and 16. What's your answer to that question? Well, um... I'm asking you. I'm asking you that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not running for yeah, president. Yeah, I'm setting. I'm setting a national I, example here. Yeah. So, 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 as I said with Ron DeSantis, I think my goal is not to undercut any particular candidate. Okay, yeah. my goal is to make the case for why, why I'm is running for president. So afraid to just say like, yeah, Donald Trump is not a moral exemplar. Well, <laughs> I, I want my kids to grow because, up to be well, like. I, I actually, actually, here's. By the way, I spoke on a CPAC stage to a full audience of Trump supporters, and what, yeah. here's what I'm avoiding. If I'm yeah. dancing around something, yeah, I don't you're want, dancing around this a little bit. Yeah, but, but well, I'll tell you what I'm dancing around is I don't believe in being morally sanctimonious about this. Fair, self-important, okay. right? Judging someone else as immoral or something like that. But yeah. I'm making a case for my candidacy that I yeah. believe whoever occupies the White House next, if you want to push the America First agenda and you want to take it the distance, you have to do it with moral authority from a solid moral foundation. And it'll be up to the people of this country to decide whether I'm that person. But I will tell you, I was given the ultimate privilege, that one that we're given to our kids, of two parents, stably in the house, making the sacrifices needed to have and create a family. Yes, everything involves a sacrifice. You give something else up. But you can make a sacrifice if you know what you're sacrificing for. And I think that applies whether you're a family member, equally to whether you're a citizen of a nation, equally to whether you're the leader of a nation. And I'm unapologetic about being a person of faith. I'm a believer. I believe in God. And I think that that's something that I say not because I was taught to say it two minutes before walking into a campaign speech, but because it is true, right? And so I think that that will, I believe, better empower me to go further than even Trump did with that America First agenda. And that's why I'm in this race. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land.
When do you start developing your antipathy for um, wokeism, for you know, and for um, racial preference programs and affirmative action? That's what you're in this race. That's that, that's what drives it's you. Things. It's one of the things it's, that animates you know, this for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If I'm reading, you know, when you wrote your op-ed in the Wall, your editorial in the Wall Street Journal on why you're running, it was dense. It's packed with those those issues. Mm-hmm. Wokeism, ESG, uh, diversity initiatives. Tell us tell a little bit about when you started developing um, and becoming a sort of crusader a- a- against uh, that. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably harbored those intuitions for a long time. It probably relates to my upbringing and the fact that achievement was so integral to, an achievement culture was so integral to my success in this country. You know, I was an outsider growing up in many ways, but everyone's an outsider in some way or other. But achievement was definitely my ticket to get ahead. So anything that was anti-meritocratic probably always had a had a current that was, uh, you know, almost antithetical to my personhood, right? But I really only started taking this up as a cause, I would say, when I had an experience in my time as a biotech CEO, when after the George Floyd protests, and this by this point, this you know, Roy, relatively recent. relatively recently, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking twenty twenty here. You know, the company had been successful by that point in time, multiple successful drugs, multi-billion dollar company. I've built it as CEO. There's a demand that lands on my doorstep to make a statement in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I refused to do. Actually. That came internally? Yeah, internally. But but I think it was, I mean, not, not really, though, because it was just the thing that every CEO and every other company was doing. So what's external, what was internal and sort of a cultural epidemic at that point in time? It's a hard distinction to draw. Yeah. There was a social expectation from above, below, within, and around that you toe the line and you make the statement you're supposed to make. Yeah. Generally, whatever statement you want to make, it ends with capital B, Black Lives Matter. And, and I just I refused to do it because I could not honestly and authentically endorse, even implicitly, an organization that actually called for, among other things, getting rid of the nuclear family structure, the very thing I was actually, in a different context, just now talking about, which was actually, ironically, the source of black empowerment in the United States. I refused to make an artificial statement, even if that was the convenient thing to do. That set in motion, I think, a series of events that culminated in several advisors to my company resigning and me making the decision that either I was going to be free to speak my mind as a citizen or I could speak as a citizen through the filter of corporate self-interest. And I decided to opt to speak freely as a citizen. And the company was in a good place. I had, you know, a succession plan lined up. Company just under a three billion dollar deal the year at the end of the prior year. A lot of stars lined up, and I decided that it was time to move on to my career as a as an outspoken citizen, speaking freely on issues that other people, most importantly, were certainly at the time afraid to speak about with the same candor. In college at Harvard and Yale, you must have encountered. I mean, you know what the culture of, of those places are, are it like. Is, it's different is, today than it was, though. I'll say that. Really, I mean, I went to UC Berkeley in the '90s, and these issues were ripe and present even then. But like, I'll ask you one question you, about that. I'm yeah, curious for, for your yeah, experience at UC Berkeley yeah. in the '90s. I, I, so I went to Harvard from 2003 to 2007. Yeah, my my. Base assessment is Harvard's a different place today than it was during the four years that I was there. And maybe Berkeley is different than it was the place when you were there, when no matter what your views were, there was a, there was a fierce commitment to free speech and the open exchange of ideas. Well, I Berkeley don't know if that was famously, the yeah, because there was a you know the free speech movement in the '60s was still honored in the '90s. It was very important, 
Um, and that's what's so, changed. And, and, and so, so, there was, so I think that change yeah. is a big part. That change in the free speech culture is a big part of what drew me into this. Because, I, because you felt what? You felt like you weren't allowed to say, I don't support BLM because I looked on their website and they believe X, Y, and Z, and I don't believe that. I think it's racially divisive, and I don't believe that George Floyd should be celebrated as a hero, even if his death was a tragedy. Lots of things that, that reflect my true beliefs. Th- those are things you... you, you couldn't say, certainly not in that environment. You felt like you couldn't say that on campus or as a CEO? As a CEO. On campus when I was at Harvard, believe me, I was unrestrained, and I appreciated that. Were you involved in campus politics at Harvard and Yale? A little bit. So I was... was, Like, were you involved in these issues? I mean, mean, these these weren't the hot issues of that day. There were different issues of that day. A lot of post-9-11 stuff, actually. Yeah, it was about Bush. Everyone hated Bush then. I was actually one of these, you know, quasi-libertarian libertarian types who stood against the over-expensive national security state Got in the wake it. of post-9-11. So that's where I was Got back it. then. That's kind of where You were like protesting against Cheney. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say against Guantanamo Bay, broad, yeah. broadly speaking, due process, you know, even though it wasn't a formal constitutional right, if you're not an American, what does that mean? Those are the kinds of issues that interested me, you like back in college and shortly thereafter. Got I'm very staunchly libertarian. But... You weren't involved with, like, the race and culture issues that you're deeply involved in No, now. I don't think that those yeah. were as, as present back then. I Got don't it. think that the culture of, like, sort of racial wokeism was what it is now. I don't remember... Makes sense, because I don't remember it, it, being asked to call upon seeing my black colleague or classmate and to anticipate how his worldview might be different as a consequence of his race and then to change what I say in response. I think that is absolutely yeah. the moment we live in today. That is exactly what kids, adults, whatever, across this country are called upon to do. That didn't exist back then. Did you know you were a Republican from an early age, or was no. that not... Republican, I mean, maybe like in and out of it. I would say that between right and left, I've leaned right even at a younger age, but some of that was just to be like in contrast to my dad, who like sort of leaned left, and we would just have like fun... Is he still like that today? ...family debates. He would say he's not partisan, so I would say he, he leans left a little bit. Oh, yeah, so he's like, do you guys have big lot. political not fights? Not, not fun. Fun, you know. Yeah. I think I think we view it as family fun, and that's the. He spirit. doesn't sound like he's down with the full Vivek agenda. Then, <laughs> yeah, we disagree about some things. Absolutely, yeah. you know, we he'll, he'll bring it up. We'll argue about it. My mom yeah. will disagree about something, and you know, that's what growing up in the '90s in America used to be like. Also, yeah. and we still preserve that culture in our family today. Yeah. But but it's that culture that changed, actually. And I think from Harvard on down, I mean, it doesn't doesn't make a difference whether you're in college or whether you're talking about the culture of the country. Yeah, there came to be a gap that caused you to have to filter what you said through the prism of what was socially acceptable under the new norms of intersectionality and and the new norms that were tied even to the genetically inherited attributes that created the invisible power structures of oppression. Have you spent a lot of time genuinely trying to grapple and study the books and ideas and theories behind what you're opposed to? Of course, yeah. of course, yeah. You have to. I mean, you have to know. You have to know. You have to hear the best arguments and try on a set of ideas like a set of clothes before you know it doesn't fit. Who are the? What's the universe of authors that you sort of are the main ones that you think have driven this and that you think are just you know bullshit? Well, I mean, I, I don't. I don't want to put, have you put words into my own mouth to say it's even it's bullshit. No, right? so all right, no, 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 so, no. so so I will tell you, but but you know, but that you find that you find views. objectionable. You know, I think. Um, I mean. Or go that you're in Hegel. conversation with right go now. Go back to Hegel. Go back yeah. to Marx. Go back to Foucault. And then yeah. you find out how does that trickle its way down through Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell. Yeah. How does that then get to the real, 
the bastardized versions of, of Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi. So the sort of cultural Marxism and how that sort of yeah, filtered exactly. its way through the academy. Exactly, and, and the popularized version that really are, are trash. Well, I would say Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi are in the, in the category of not even respectable work. Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell are. I mean, that's original, interesting work. Now, I think that, and I, and I talk a lot about this history in uh, Nation of Victims. I say Robin D'Angelo and Abram Kendi are sort of trash level. You feel like not, they're the pop. Not because I, dis, whether or not I disagree with the ideas. I'm saying that the quality of the rigor of an argument that somebody makes in front of, a, in, in favor of a particular perspective is lacking there in a way that, go back to Hegel, okay, well, there's something to engage with here, right? And so, you so know. So they've taken these sort of like more serious intellectual uh, tr- traditions that are, yeah, and, and sort of popularized them. Yeah, gutted them, really. Yeah, gutted them. They're a hollowed out husk of what's left. And then that was able to, now you have a culture that consumes that without even knowing what the essence was in the first place of what animated the philosophy. Don't you think, to be honest though, don't you think that's true of a lot of people on the right? Yeah, I say that all the time. I say people, when they throw around CRT, and don't, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know what that really yeah, means. I, I say this all, the, but then I think that there's a lack of intellectual empathy around the board with this sort of gamesmanship by somebody who thinks they're really scholarly on the left, but like you know, read a book yesterday and yeah. says, "Oh, well, that's not critical race theory because technically maybe it wasn't critical race theory, but it certainly is a derivative of critical race theory that engages in this verbal jujitsu gamesmanship, which then sows and breeds further mistrust because nobody likes to be looked down upon, even if their intuitions are in the right place." And so I think that. Like one of my responsibilities as a citizen in, in this race, as a political leader, et cetera, is to build that bridge and to say that, okay, even if you didn't go to Yale Law School with me or even remember 12th grade high school civics to say that the First Amendment only applies to government actors, but you feel in your bones that it feels like a First Amendment violation when social media companies are censoring you and locking your account, that's my job to animate that intuition with the actual legal arguments that actually exist. But I want you to talk about national identity, but I guess the, the question is, what is the threat? If everything you say about wokeism is correct, what is the threat? Yeah, what is the be, problem I want to be really careful because I think people, people are, are, you know, I wrote a book called Woking, so it's natural yeah. for people to say, oh, then you're the anti-woke guy. No, no. Wokeism is a symptom of a deeper identity crisis that manifests okay. itself in many ways in this country. All right. Let's, through partisan division, through unpack climate, that, yeah. through, the, through, through allegiance to a climate cult that I think is more of climatism, a... Climatism, you call this. Climatism. Yeah. Through COVID as a religion. Through modern gender ideology, which right. is different from racial wokeism, these, but, but it's these not. These three things you've described as a, a secular religion. Yeah, secular cults is the language that I even would use. And you said that there's Supreme Court precedents that they should be banished from, from the government, that the government is actually inculcating... Um, I think the, the, the exact argument other, I made is, is, is that they, they constitute Title VII violations when foisted upon employees in the same way that if it was Christianity foisted on an employee, it would constitute a Title VII violation. And, I mean, you have like a serious legal argument about that. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. So good, how, yeah, legal arguments of a lot of how are those three things religions? How are those three things secular yeah, so, religions? So they meet the Supreme Court's test for what counts as a religion. I mean, there's a case called Peterson that actually found a religion that probably neither of us subscribe to, found that white supremacy was its core tenet, that what is good for the white race is good for salvation. Supreme Court held, and I think it was Peterson was the case where they held that was a religion for Title VII purposes. They've held that secular humanism is a religion for Title VII purposes. Even a happiness system, a, a sort of a, a self-coaching, self-help system known as, and I'm not making this name up, Onionhead is the name of this belief system. Onionhead is a religion for Title VII purposes under Supreme Court doctrine, which takes a broad view of religious protection in the context of employment discrimination. And employment discrimination includes the employer not being able to foist their employee onto that of the employee. So 
if those things count as religion for Title VII purposes, then certainly much of what you hear in the modern DEI orthodoxy, confess your whiteness, admit your privilege, acknowledge systemic racism in the United States, certain words you can't say, apologies you must recite, clothes you can't wear, excommunication procedures that must be initiated, meet the Supreme Court's test to a T, comprehensive belief system rather than a narrow issue. I and mean, I can go through the legal analysis and I've published elsewhere about it, and some of it's in Woke Inc. too. That's a legal violation. And so, so again, a big part of this is, is recognizing that Title VII as it exists today is itself something that is probably violated on a large scale across corporate America and across much of the education industry as well, hiding in plain sight. And I intend to use the Department of Justice to apply our civil rights laws even-handedly. I don't think our civil rights laws are applied evenly today. I think they ought to be. It's one of the things that a U.S. president can actually do. You seem... Um open about the fact that you might not know uh, something. So you're sort of, in, you've insulated yourself from some of the maybe like gotcha questions that journalists might ask you about various policy issues. Yeah. Do you find yourself saying like, well, I just, you know, I don't know about that yet. Or are you comfortable with, you know, the potential embarrassment of, you know, not knowing a major presidential issue? Well, I think it may turn out that I yeah. know more than you think or more than people might think. But, but the sure. whole point is... That's not the premise of my candidacy, yeah. is not that I'm a know-it-all. And I think that it comes from a place of, look, everyone's insecure about different things. I'm not insecure about knowledge or my ability to acquire knowledge or process information. Yeah. And that's why, you know what, a lot of the people I take advice from are domain experts, and a lot of the people I don't are really thoughtful, logical, brilliant people who themselves are outsiders. And it's the combination of those advisors, if you will, from whom I take advice on important domains of what it takes to prepare for the presidency. And so in order to be embarrassed, you have to have an insecurity, I think. And so I don't, at least in this set of issues, I don't have that insecurity. And so I almost by definition can't be embarrassed. What do you think is the biggest um, policy area or set of issues where you need um, to get up to speed on that you haven't thought as much about? I would say areas of foreign policy outside of my top priorities. So I've made very clear what my top priorities are. Yeah. But being the leader of the free world means you need to be prepared right. for foreign policy challenges that arise from where you were least expecting them, right? A lot of our foreign policy relationships with Africa and West African nations, even even certain South American nations outside of Colombia, where I'm, where I'm familiar with some more of the history. Yeah. I don't know a lot about it. I'm going to need to get up to speed on that before hey, I become I ask U.S. You, president. Who's our most important ally in sub-Saharan Africa? I wouldn't have a great answer for you on that question. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly the kind yeah, of thing and I'm not saying I, I respect know. to learn. You know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, the kind of thing that I've discovered is when there's supposed to be a stock answer to that question, double click on it. And it turns out that that's not a question of like a knowledge. People who are training for the presidency might treat that as a fact. But what does it mean? There's sort of a what does it mean to be an ally of the United States? Because right. I'll tell you what is going on in sub-Saharan Africa right now yeah. is that there's a dynamic of whether or not those nations can take funding both from the United States and China. The, the saying as it goes in sub-Saharan Africa is they try to convince the U.S. to say that we should still be able to take these indebtedness arrangements with China. The, the saying in sub-Saharan Africa, you probably have heard it, is when two elephants fight, the grass suffers. Huh. Okay, referring to the U.S. and China as the elephants. Yeah, yeah. Well, an important part of my foreign policy involves declaring independence from China. That means reasserting our leadership through diplomacy, which means to a lot of those sub-Saharan African nations to be able to say that we will continue these aid programs and lending programs if and only if you actually decouple from China, you force them to make the choice. Yeah. Now, turns out that a lot of those African nations 
like the U.S. better as a partner than China if they had to choose. China's racist with respect to African nations. There's no secret about that. There's debt deals that are far encumbering on those, on those economies and the assets that they encumber. So I think in terms of those principles of diplomacy, and then we come to the question of, okay, against that backdrop, who actually ought to be or is in that framework the most valuable ally rather than, you know, some rote book that was written by a foreign policy consultant that was responsible for presidential briefings since the year 2000. Yeah. And I think that that's part of what reveals the idea that even the answers to these stock questions are themselves an artifact of a stultified process. Right, because there's a foreign policy establishment and there's a consensus on a lot of of, of these issues. And you're, and you're trying to stay fresh, trying to look at these things and say, well, maybe they're wrong about this. Yeah, and not but, for the sake of saying they're wrong, but I will say this is I do like to understand that status quo for what it is. I've been pretty disappointed by how skin deep even some of that is, finger length, fingernail length deep answers to the question of why the U.S. I mean, I would, ex- I would have expected a far more robust counterexample, yeah. countercase to why the U.S. military could not be used to secure our border or to do south of our own border what we've done in what's, ISIS, for ISIS in places like what, Syria or Iraq. What's the most serious objection you run up against with respect to the use of uh, the military and Mexico? Yeah, so uh, the, the most serious objection actually is that if stopping the fentanyl crisis is the justification, yeah. that that is traditionally viewed as a law enforcement function. Yeah. And law enforcement function is fundamentally different from the military because of an act that dates back to the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, yeah. which says that actually we don't use military in the United States to perform law enforcement function because that's what the North did with respect to the South. Yeah. Part of Reconstruction was, uh, it was a special name for the law, but what it basically said is we don't use military to carry out law enforcement function, and that became part of the legal uh, culture in the United States. Yeah. However, what happened then is the ability when you saw al-Qaeda and others or other organizations using, uh, even committing domestic crimes, that ended up being treated as a law enforcement function, even by law enforcement bureaus like the FBI. Yeah. But that created what was really a slip in reasoning. It's not codified in law, but the objection you would hear is that's law enforcement. But actually, just because it was included in a law enforcement function doesn't mean that it fell outside of the orbit of what the military or foreign policy could deal with if it was still a non-U.S. actor. And so the real principle at the heart of it is you don't want to use the U.S. military performing law enforcement functions vis-a-vis Americans. Right, the serious but somehow they, issue. But, it gets, but you get the slippage of it where somebody in that defense establishment is used to that habit, right, reciting that by rote, almost forgets even the legal principles that actually serve as the real guardrails. And so this is why I think it is useful yeah. for me to come in to the White House, maybe not in the Congress or the U.S. Senate, but in the White House as an outsider with a fresh perspective, but not an outsider who's just coming in to break things for the sake of breaking things, yeah. but coming in because I have an affirmative vision that's a vision of an outsider, but to be completely starting with a blank slate, only armed by first principles as to how we're actually going to get to the answer to questions that even members of the establishment don't. And that's similar to how we're running this campaign. I mean, I don't think, I think it runs against all normal campaign advice to give your oppo research five days worth of one hour daily podcasts to dig into <laughs> but that's the bet we're making and i think the way we run this campaign is as different from a traditional campaign as the way i'll run the government is well, different from a traditional president when they start dropping op on you that's when you know that you're uh, ha- having some success i don't yeah. think anyone feels that they need to do that at, at it this started point. on day one actually um, <laughs> yeah but yeah I th- who went I th- after you on day was, one it was kind of interesting i was flattered <laughs> by that who went after you 
I think um, I think a lot of people on the right actually. Uh, I haven't I haven't gotten a ton of left wing oppo yet. I actually started getting left wing oppo in the later stages of my business career uh, when we knew we had made it with uh, yeah. with with Strive. But here, um, yeah, I think a, a lot of people were coming at you know different aspects of my background, new to the scene, et cetera. And we, we addressed that, and I think we brought a lot of them along with us in the movement. I also think that you know what, if you don't have thick enough skin to deal with a little bit of criticism, you probably shouldn't be asking the country to sit you across the table from Xi Jinping. And so, you know, the name calling or, yeah. you know, say you'll hear certain candidates say they won't talk to NBC News because they're not nice to them. Yeah. I think if you can't talk to NBC News, you probably shouldn't be representing the United States across from Putin or Xi. You're talking about DeSantis there. Yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah. for doing this. Thank I you, appreciate it. I appreciate and it. We'll talk again soon. Hopefully. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Right, yeah. Take care. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Amant is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to read Daniel Lippman's piece on Vivek over at playbook.com. And please follow Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>